This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hey everyone, so glad you're with us for Calvary Online. We're continuing our series called Summer Playlist, where we're investigating together some important scriptures that we want to put on repeat in our hearts and in our minds. Scriptures that we can come back to and remember and hopefully remind ourselves of who God is and his love for us. I'm so thankful to Perry Marshall for leading us last week through an important scripture that should be on our playlist, Psalm 121, as we remember that our help comes from the Lord. It was a couple weeks ago when we were journeying together through Colossians chapter 1, which I'd like to go back to again today. We were in verses 15 through 20 as we were answering an important question, what I think actually is the most important question that any of us can answer. Who is Jesus? So many different opinions, so many different ways that people answer that question. But we saw in these six verses, I think one of the most incredible and insightful answers from the Apostle Paul about who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, actually is. We saw in verses 15 through 17 that Jesus is the uncaused king of creation. Paul described it in four ways, that Jesus is the designer, the builder, the owner, and the sustainer of creation. And then in verses 18 through 20, the focus shifted, still talking about Jesus. And Paul described him as the king of salvation. We saw him as the unequaled author of it, that salvation was Jesus's idea, the unearned award of salvation, that Jesus is a gift that comes to us from God the Father and the unmatched agent of salvation, that Jesus is the only way by which we might be saved. And we saw Paul describe the perfect, beautiful answer to who Jesus is. We're going to continue in Colossians chapter 1 together today, and we're going to move to verses 23, uh, verses 21 through 23. And the focus shifts in these verses. In 15 through 20, 13 times Paul refers to Jesus, describing him and he and all the ways that he is the king of salvation and the king of creation. And suddenly in verse 21, the subject changes, the tense shifts, it moves to describe you. Paul wants to share with the Colossian church, the recipients of this letter that he wrote in the first century, to help them understand who they are, who they were. And for us, too, I think these three verses are so helpful for us to answer this more personal but also important question. Who are you? That's what Paul takes his readers through in these three verses. Verses, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. So if you have a Bible, open it with me and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. It's a personal reminder from the Apostle Paul to the Colossians and to us of who we are are. Paul says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul describes who we are in three ways and actually divides the Christian life into three categories. 
He says in these verses that all believers have a past, a present, and a future. He begins in verse 21 by describing the Christian life of the past, the way we once lived. He says at the beginning of verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now we have to ask ourselves a question. Who are we alienated from? Who are we hostile toward? Why are we described as evil by the Apostle Paul? Well, Paul describes in these verses that we actually, in our beginning state, when we're born, before we know Christ, before we have been saved by him, all humans are alienated and hostile from God. This is harsh language and can be difficult for us to hear. But it's a reminder for those of us who call on the name of Jesus, who have been saved by him, that we have a past. And our past is defined by Paul in these relational terms by saying, you were once alienated from God, estranged from him. There's a relational disconnect between humans and God the Father. Alienated. We're alienated from God because of our sin. And our sin breaks our relationship between us and God, our creator, the one who has made us and who loves us. But the Bible says, and Paul says here in this verse, that we are alienated. I want to be very clear here. If you're a believer, this is in your past. But if you don't yet know Jesus, this is actually your present reality. This is either your history or this is your here and now. There's no gray area here in the mind of Paul. It's either you are currently alienated from God or you once were, and that's in the past. I would gently ask you, if if you're far from God, would you consider that your state today might be one of alienation from your creator, from the one who loves you, who made you, who sent his son to save you? And as Paul goes on, he's going to describe how how you can actually exchange your status as one who is alienated from God to one who is reconciled to him. But when we see this word alienated, I think there are a number of ways that we would actually rather describe ourselves in relationship to God if we don't yet know him. I know many people who would describe themselves as an atheist. They don't believe that God exists. Other people might describe themselves as agnostic. They're just unsure whether or not there is a God or whether we could know him. And I think many people, whether they would describe themselves in this way or not, are actually just apathetic towards God. They don't care whether God exists and live their life in a way that God doesn't seem to matter. But the biblical definition of a person who does not yet know Jesus, who has not received the free gift of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone, the biblical word for that is not atheist, is not agnostic, is not even apathetic, but it is alienated. Your relationship to God is broken because of your sin. And the truth is we all at one point are alienated from God, separated from him. And it's because God because of who he is, can't stand sin. He can't tolerate it. It's not simply because our sin annoys him or he just dislikes it, but it's because of who God is. He is perfect and sinless and holy. He is righteous, completely and totally without sin. And because of that, sin just simply cannot be in God's presence. And it alienates us in our relationship to him. 
Just like we can be alienated in our relationships to others, friends, family. We all know how painful an alienated relationship with another person can be. But it isn't just that we are alienated from God. Paul goes on to say that we're actually hostile. We are actively antagonistic to our creator, to the one who loves us. I want you to notice, though, who Paul describes as being alienated and hostile. It's us. It's humans. We are the ones who are actively in rebellion. We are the ones whose relationship with God has been damaged and destroyed because of our sin. We're estranged from him. We're alienated and hostile. That's our default position as humans. But God's default position with humans towards his created beings is one of love. Because God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. While we are best described as alienated and hostile from God, God is described as a God of love. Now, we have to be careful here because the Bible, throughout the New Testament especially, is very descriptive of a characteristic of God known as his wrath. And it does say very clearly that all humans, because of our sin, are under the wrath of God. But when we hear the word wrath, we think of like an irrational outburst from someone. We think of a person who just flies off the handle and is crazy, angry, uncontrolled. That's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is his divine displeasure with sin. The reality that because of his character, because of his justice, because of his righteousness, sin cannot be in his presence and he cannot tolerate it in his creation. But it doesn't mean that God is irrationally angry. It means that sin must be dealt with. A penalty must be paid. And so therefore, sin must be punished. And the wrath of God is a conditional part of God's character that is a reaction and based on our sin. But God loves us. In fact, Jesus describes this sort of history-altering way that God relates to his enemies, to those who are described as hostile. In Matthew chapter 5, He talks about the way that most people relate to those who are alienated from them, the way that most people relate to their enemies, the ways that most people relate to those who hate them. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, notice this, You may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he, God, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Notice how God relates to those people who are opposed to him. Notice how God loves the people who are alienated and hostile towards him. He makes the sun rise. He makes the rain fall. He loves people who are opposed to him because he is a God of love and mercy who desires that people would be saved by his son, Jesus Christ. And so God initiates the next step that we see in these verses. God helps people move from actively being in rebellion to God. It's like moving people from being at war with him to peace with him. Moving people from disharmony to harmony. Moving people from alienation to acceptance, to be a part of God's family, from hostility to harmony. 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were actively opposed to God, Jesus Christ died for us. He goes on to say in verse 21 that we were alienated and hostile in mind. Not just in our actions, but in our mind, in our inward being. This is such an important reminder for us that it's very possible. And Jesus confronted many people who were outwardly religious, but yet in their heart, in their mind, they were inwardly rebellious. They were hostile to God and his purposes. This is a good reminder for us that man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. He sees what's going on in our mind, what we really think, what we really believe. And he isn't impressed by simply our outward actions, but he wants to see us be transformed in our minds, in our hearts. Now, as I said, these are harsh words from the Apostle Paul. If you're not yet in relationship with Jesus, you might even be offended by this description that Paul would use to describe someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, alienated and hostile. But I think Paul wants his readers to get their bearings, to assess the situation and have an accurate assessment of what's happening around them. It's so important for us to understand where we stand with God. We often need to get our bearings in a variety of circumstances. A couple weeks ago, my family and I were camping for a few days. We were up in Buena Vista, Colorado at the Arkansas River, and we rafted it a few times with our friends. And when we got to the campsite right on the river, we got our tent set up, ready to camp, and I noticed a gentleman and his family who had just arrived. And he looked like he was getting his bearings, assessing the situation of the campground that they were going to stay the night in. And he caught my eye and asked me if I had ever stayed at this campsite before. And I said, well, this is our first time camping here, but we've been here a few times to raft this section of river. And he said, oh, perfect. I have a couple questions about the campsite. It's our first time here. He said, first, can you point me to the camp office? And I smiled and said, oh, this isn't really that kind of campsite. There's not an office. You can just go over to the kiosk and pay your fee there. He said, okay, how about the showers? where would I find the showers at this campsite? And I chuckled and said, there are no showers, but there is a river. And then he asked, how about the general store? Where would we find that? I said, you're not from around here, are you? He was getting his bearings, and I'm not sure he totally liked the assessment of the situation of the campsite that he found himself in. But it's important for us to understand where we stand. Paul takes us from the past reality of who we were before we knew Christ and for the believer moves us to our present, to the real life that we live today in verse 22. He says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This is the initiation that God has taken. Even though we were alienated and hostile towards God, God loved us so much that he took the first step and he, through his son, has reconciled us to himself through the body of flesh of Jesus Christ. As we said a couple of weeks ago, as we were looking at verse 19 of Colossians chapter 1, it described uh, by Paul the way that, that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Colossians 1 verse 19 says this, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully man in his body of flesh and fully God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. 
And there was a very specific act that needed to occur in order for reconciliation to happen between God and man. For we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so for us to be reconciled, sin must be paid for. And only the death of Jesus could reconcile all things to himself because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and in his body of flesh. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's just another word for the cross. So that we might die to sin put behind the alienation and hostility in our hearts and minds, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness so that we might be reconciled. Peter says, by his wounds, you have been healed. In his body of flesh, by his death, the reconciliation between sinners and God has occurred. My friends, if if Jesus' life simply ended in a death and it accomplished nothing, there would be no benefit to it. If his death was simply an example for us to follow, it wouldn't be effective. It wouldn't have paid the penalty of sin. But because Jesus is God himself, holy, perfect, sinless, completely obedient, his death and his blood is sufficient to save sinners from their sins. This is the purpose of Jesus. Jesus was born to die. The purpose of his life is most fully expressed in his death. And do you know what Jesus did when he hung on the cross? He he became alienated from God. He was estranged from him, alone there. Do you remember what he said at the end of Matthew chapter 27? Some of the final words of his life when he said, crying out with a loud voice in Matthew 27 verse 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the alienation that we all do, the estrangement from God, the the gap between the relationship that exists between sinful human beings and God as he bore our sins on the cross, on the tree. He was alienated from God in those moments, estranged from his father, and he took on sin so that we might live. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says that, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the reconciliation that happens through the death of Jesus. Reconciliation is such a relief when it happens in our relationships. I remember a very specific time when I was young and I needed to be reconciled to my parents. Maybe you had a similar experience. When I was about five or six, my next door neighbor had some older siblings. And when we spent time at their house, we watched them do something that was kind of a regular uh, prank for young people at that time. They would prank call someone on the telephone. This was before caller ID, so people didn't know who was calling. And they would say something silly and hang up and we would all laugh. And my friend and me, five years old, didn't really know a lot of telephone numbers, but we were at my mom's, my parents' house one day, and we decided we wanted to prank call someone. But the only number we knew was the number zero to call the operator. So we got all excited and dialed zero on the phone, and the operator picked up, and we said something silly and inappropriate and hung up the phone, and we were so happy with ourselves. We had done what we had seen these older kids do, prank call someone. We laughed. We were so proud of ourselves. It was thrilling until the phone rang 
And what we didn't know was that the operator knew every number that called them. And when the operator called and spoke to my mother, my mother asked the operator to speak to me. And he gave me a very stern talking to. Uh, I remember him telling me how inappropriate it was and how dangerous it was for me to call and prank the operator. And then my mother said these fearing words. Go to your room until your father comes home. And then there I was in my room, alienated from my parents. I was hostile towards them. I had done these evil deeds and I had to wait until my dad would come home. And when he did, my mom made me confess to him what I had done. Explain that I'd pranked the operator. And then there was a punishment. And then I was reconciled to my parents, restored in my relationship to them. They forgave me. I no longer had to be alone in my room. I no longer had to be alienated from them. They no longer brought up what I had done. And I was so relieved to be reconciled. And that, for those of us who call on the name of Jesus, is our present reality, that we are reconciled to God. And then Paul goes on to describe our promised future at the end of verse 22. He says that one day Jesus will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is a picture of the last day when believers will stand with Jesus at our side before God the Father and he will present us. This is our future with Jesus right there telling the Father that we are, Paul describes it in three ways, holy, blameless, and above reproach. We, in that day, our promised future says that we will be holy. We will be without sin. We'll be set apart from it and all of its consequences. We'll no longer be captive to it or burdened by it, and we'll be confident to stand before God because we will be holy, free from sin, and cleansed from all unrighteousness. And we will be blameless, without spot or wrinkle. We won't be blamed by God. We won't be scolded or disciplined for what we have done in our past, but we will be blameless before him, and we will be above reproach. There won't be a record of sin. No one will stand up and read all the things that we have done, but we will be above reproach. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions or our sins from us. But we should be careful here. We will not one day be holy and blameless and above reproach because of the life that we have lived. But we will be holy and blameless and above reproach because of the death that Jesus died for us. That's our promised future. Now, as we look at our final verse, verse 23, it appears at first glance that Paul believes our future hope is based on one condition. Is that right? Look at verse 23 with me. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If indeed you continue. Does this mean that Paul is unsure about whether or not we will continue in the faith? Does this mean that it ultimately depends on us, that all of this present reality and future hope is conditional, dependent upon the way that we live No, in in the original language, this one condition is assumed to be true. It's almost like Paul is saying, since you will continue in the faith stable and steadfast. Because what does our faith depend on? Does our faith ultimately depend on us and the way that we live? Do we need a perfect faith? No, we need a perfect Savior, Jesus. 
who is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that we depend on for our faith. And because our faith is in him, we will be stable and steadfast. This is like a building that has a a firm foundation that's built on Christ. And he goes on to say that you will not be shifting from the hope of the gospel. I think as we look at verses 15 through 23, we see a beautiful picture of what the gospel is. That the uncaused king of creation, Jesus Christ, who made all things, left heaven and came to earth to redeem a people for himself through his death, which is proved by his resurrection and his resurrected body. Jesus, risen from the dead, was witnessed by more than 500 people. And this is the gospel to which we cling, that salvation is found in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died a death that we all deserve to die. But through his death, he paid the penalty that we all deserve to pay. And for those of us who call on the name of Jesus, we can be saved. That is very, very good news. Paul goes on at the end of this to say that that this gospel has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven which that seems like a little bit of a stretch, right? This is written 20, maybe 30 years after Jesus has returned to heaven. Paul writes it from a prison in Rome, and he even talks about wanting to go to Spain where he can proclaim the gospel. So clearly Paul knows that the gospel has not been proclaimed to all creation under heaven. It has reached a relatively small area. It's grown quickly, but it hasn't reached all places. I wonder if Paul says this because his confidence in the gospel going to all creation under heaven is the same kind of confidence that he has, that those who have called on the name of Jesus will remain stable and steadfast and continue in their faith. I think as we survey the history of the church over the last 2,000 years and look at where we live, many of us all over the world, we can say that Paul's bet that all creation under heaven would one day hear the gospel is a pretty sure one. We know there's still work to do. We know there are many places where the gospel still needs to be proclaimed. But as we look at the world and how the gospel has gone to so many places, we think that Paul's confidence in its spreading to all creation under heaven is a good one. It's a promise of God that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. So as we close, where do you stand? Are you living in the past? Or have you embraced Jesus Christ and now are living in the present as someone who has been reconciled to God? If you haven't yet called on the name of Jesus, I would urge you to do so now, wherever you are. You can ask Jesus to save you, to reconcile you back to God, and he promises that he will faithfully save you and forgive you from your sins. Even if you've known Jesus for a long time, I wonder if you might be living in the past too. Some of us carry so much shame and guilt from our past that we can't move beyond it. We think about it constantly, and it affects the way that we live today. But the gospel tells us that we don't have to live in our past. We no longer have to be defined by our sins, but that we, as followers of Jesus, can embrace the reality of who we are in Jesus. You have been reconciled, made new by his blood. And so you can live in the present as someone who is reconciled to God. And you can bank on a a future hope, what's coming to you, the day when you will be holy and blameless before him above reproach, without any record of sin. When we live as the people of God who have been transformed by his saving work, reconciled to him in the world, we share in this mission of reconciliation. 
Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and said, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the, the ministry of reconciliation. This is our calling in our day to be the ones who share with friends and family and people that we come in contact with that we can that they can move from a past of alienation and hostility into a present beautiful experience of reconciliation with God. This is part of our calling as the followers of Jesus as the church in this day in this time to be the ministers of reconciliation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for calling us into your work of reconciling people to yourself. We pray for your help, God, as we do so. And I pray for any friend who might be watching today who does not yet know your son, Jesus. I pray by the work of your Holy Spirit that you might reach into their heart and into their mind and exchange their alienation for reconciliation and that you would give them confidence that they have a future hope that is found in Jesus Christ, one day to stand confidently before the Lord, holy and blameless and above reproach. We give you thanks and glory, God, for the work that you have done and you have accomplished through your son, Jesus. We pray all this in his name. We're so glad you joined us today. If we can answer any questions about what it might mean to have a relationship with God, and to learn more about his son, Jesus Christ, we hope you'll reach out to us. We hope to see you soon. Until then, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ.